coming up on Pass the Secret Sauce. People sometimes get afraid to make a mistake so they won't try something or, you know, they'll hope somebody else tries it because it's hard. And so we just say, you know, at every meeting, if we don't get this right, it's okay. If you break something, it's fine. But we have to we have to make progress every day. And as long as we're making progress, we'll learn from that progress and we'll get yeah. better and we'll be able to pivot, figure things out. And I can't tell you how many meetings we'll have where, you know, we'll get stuck and someone will go, oh, I'm stuck here. This isn't working. So we'll say, well, let's talk about the progress we've made so we can still feel good about where we're stuck and then figure out where to go from here. And so the next core value would be know the goal. Okay. And we sit in meetings and like every meeting, you get shot off into tangents and you were here talking about this and next thing you're talking about that. And somebody, and it isn't going to be me, someone will stop and say, core values, know the goal. What is it we're trying to accomplish right now? And let's make sure that every word that's spoken from this point forward in the meeting is centered on solving for whatever the goal is today. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Shields. On Pass the Secret Sauce, we unscramble the life stories, skills, and secrets from the most wicked smart minds and interesting people to uncover their experience and recipes for success that will help you get an edge on your own life. My goal is to help you rein in on the chaos that life throws at us by learning from other high achievers. If you're new to the show, we have episodes with founders, CEOs, investors, and leaders. So if you like to learn and are motivated to improve your life, then kick back and listen to our guests pass their secret sauce. Today on Pass the Secret Sauce, we have Steve Schnall, who is the founder and CEO of Quantech. So Quantech is a digital bank that has a, a niche deliverable. So creating a bank in itself is incredibly, incredibly impressive. And we get into how Steve got into the banking business. And actually, he's had a couple of different successful businesses that he's been involved with. Uh, and we go through that whole path of his. But we really dove deep into culture. And Steve has a different way of identifying people and, and communicating to people the the core values of the company. And I know a lot of people sort of poo-poo core values. I can absolutely attest to the strength of core values, but Steve has a very, very unique spin on that approach. We've all heard the typical core values that are just basically one one word and you know that, that word is very, very powerful, but Steve has actionable core values. So core values that sort of weave in together with one another and allow you to be able to use them in very, very specific situations. So it's it's not just a word or a, a, a phrase that you have in the back of your head that you know you sort of use it as a guiding light. It's it's actually something that can be infused or inserted into specific situations to create an actionable outcome that is in alignment with their culture. So really, really interesting. I think that this is an episode that pretty well every business owner should be listening to. You know, if you're struggling or if you're thinking about how to better your core values, Steve has some great, great advice along those lines. So with that, I hope you enjoy today's episode of Pass the Secret Sauce with Steve Schnall. Bringing me back. Good question. So early on, you know, traditional mom, dad, brother, 
living in, you know, modest home in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Mm -hmm. uh, my parents split up though when I was 10. So that changed pretty dramatically. Mm -hmm. And um, mom moved to Clearwater, Florida with me and my brother. We were in sleepaway camp. And when she came to pick us up, we were told we don't live with oh, wow. that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so, wow. A little shocking. But uh, yeah, so she, um, she was very influential in, I guess, shaping who I became as a grown up. You know, she didn't go to college. Neither of my parents did. And she had to go to work for the first time ever. And yeah. uh, she, she got a job with, uh, it was ADP, entry-level position, and, uh, and worked really hard just to put food on the table for me and my brother. And, uh, you know, she made sure we had everything we wanted. There was nothing extra left over by any means. Yeah. And uh, so the dinner table was oftentimes mac and cheese or, you know, spaghetti, a lot of carbs. They were inexpensive. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And, uh, you know, but she worked a lot. So I, I learned to cook for myself and, you know, take care of whatever I needed to take care of to become self-sufficient at a, at a really early age. And that yeah. was maybe the, the, this, the spawning of my entrepreneurial, you know, sort of personality. And that's, that's where I just was, I, I thought that might be one of the, one of the first, you know, inspirations to that. Were you the kid that was, you know, since you didn't have much, were you always trying to make money other places, you know, generate money somehow selling gum or candy or anything like that that's funny you say that yeah so one of the things my mom did a really good job of was making sure that we always lived in a neighborhood where there were good schools and oftentimes that meant you know we were the, the poorest kids on the block and so my friends all had more than i did and as a teenager you know you want to you know you want to be able to do the things your friends do and have what they have so i had two approaches one was more juvenile delinquency and uh, and the other was figure out how to do it honestly you know yeah, the harder yeah. way yeah so uh i remember when i was in middle school i i was um I, I don't know somebody introduced me to cinnamon toothpicks where you get these toothpicks and you yeah i remember that yeah. them in the really hot hot cinnamon oil yeah so i was making cinnamon toothpicks and selling them to kids at school until someone was allergic and uh, <laughs> <laughs> had a problem and uh and then you know, a few months later, I, I started making slingshots and ammunition out of uh, wire that I would find by the by the um, near the telephone company box. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> would you just like ball the wire up, and that was that that was what was getting shot out? So you take these big bobby pins and you'd bend them into like a slingshot shape. Okay. And then I take wire and tightly wrap it around the bobby pin, taking a broken rubber band and putting one end at each side and. And, uh, and yeah, they were really cool. Everybody loved them, but the little pieces of ammunition were also a double folded up piece of wire as well. Yeah. And it hurt when you hit somebody. So <laughs> I got sent to the dean's office again. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's great. That's great. So, yeah. so what happened? What happened next? I assume you you know went through high school and all of that. Did you do college or what was yeah, what was yeah. kind of your next step? Mom drilled in my head, get an education. So my brother and I were the first in our family ever to attend college. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, waited, worked my way through school, went to University of Florida, waited tables and bartended to get myself through school, plus several other jobs. And, you know, managed to graduate with a degree in accounting, had, you know, B-ish average, but that was cum laude at University of Florida because it was a pretty tough accounting program. Yeah. And, you know, but I had always worked, you know, from the selling little stuff, you know, I, through high school, I sold peepholes door to door, you people's, know, just, like, like, like the, on your front door peepholes. Yeah. Like we'd find like, these, 
apartment complexes with hundreds of apartments that didn't have peepholes in the door. Oh my God. So we'd knock on the door and somebody would say, who is it? And we'd say, if you had a peephole, you would have to ask. <laughs> it's a great pitch. <laughs> so we, we, we printed up cards. We were SNS security, the peephole people. It's <laughs> <laughs> great. But, uh, yeah. So I, I went to college. The plan was go to law school and, you know, become an attorney. And in uh, 1989, when I was getting ready to, when I was applying to law school, you know, if you're old enough, you remember there was a pretty deep recession going on at that time and there weren't a lot of jobs. So most of the people, most of the, you know, my peers, instead of graduating and getting a job, they said, oh, well, why don't we apply to law school or medical school or graduate school? So the applications for law school skyrocketed that year and my safe schools became reaches and I wasn't getting into the schools I wanted to. So I decided, you know, why don't I, why don't I get a job and, uh, and do that for a year or two? and then go to law school. Mm -hmm. And so that was the plan. And so I ended up, uh, what was that? U University of Florida at the uh, on-campus interviews, all the big eight accounting firms used to come and do interviews. And you know, this was kind of backup plan to law school. So I, I, I only caught the last day of interviews. I had one interview with Pricewaterhouse and they asked me, which office are you interviewing for? You know, choices being Tampa, Fort Lauderdale, Miami, or, you know, yeah. I said, how about New York? I don't know where that came from, just kind of pulled it out of the air because I was still thinking I was going to law school. And so anyway, long story short, they flew me to New York for an interview. I looked at it as a free weekend to the Big Apple. Yeah. They ended up offering me a job and you know, I decided to take it. Yeah. So last day of school, I, I got a U-Haul, hooked it up to a borrowed car, pulled all my stuff to the Big Apple and uh, found a roommate, got an apartment, worked for Price Waterhouse for a very short 10 months until I was recruited by some guys to help them start a mortgage business. And that's a whole okay. long saga in and of itself. But, you know, I wasn't really cut out for auditing. I think it's a great profession, but it wasn't for me. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I was like, I'm, I'm sitting here counting the things that others are doing. I'd rather be doing the things that others are right, doing. Right, right. Yeah. And, um, so I left, I left it the chance to join these guys. I sort of took a flyer and joined these guys and quit my job, started this mortgage business with them in 1990. That was really my first uh, real foray into the, the business universe. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember 1990. There was a little bit before I was you know, hunting for mortgages or anything like that. Was that a good time to get into the mortgage industry or is that when things were kind of in terminal, turmoil? So... Mortgage brokering was new. Rates were starting to come down. So there was a lot of refinancing activity going on. But the guys that recruited me to go into the business were, they were um, kind of scam artists. They were, they were, you know, flipping co-op apartments, you know, to people who were uninformed, who didn't know what they were worth. And then they'd have somebody appraise them higher than they were worth. Oh, and then wow. they'd have that uninformed person get a mortgage so they could buy this property at a price that was way more than it was worth. Long story, but I was one of those uninformed buyers that they tried to scam. And instead of running for the hills, I ended up joining them in the, you know, I just, I was enamored by how savvy they were. They were young guys in their early twenties and they were yeah. they had a business and they were selling real estate. And when they recruited me to help start this mortgage business, uh, I kind of forgot that I was their victim first. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, made some mistakes, and I ended up start helping them start this business, and the business did really well uh, because there was, you know, a lot of refinancing activity going on, but there was still some purchase business and mortgage brokering, other than hard money, mortgage brokering for you know conventional loans was pretty new back then, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so 
you know, taught myself the business, dialing, you know, dialing banks up out of the yellow pages and saying, hey, I've got a, I have a buyer, a borrower who needs a loan. Here's yeah. how much money he makes. Does he qualify? Like just knew nothing about it. And yeah. you know, over the course of several months, I learned how to do it and, uh, and started hustling for clients and hiring more people. And the business started to grow. And about two years in, these guys decided to throw me out and steal everything that I had built. And wow. You know, my credit cards were maxed out. My student loans were raging. I had no income, no money in the bank. And it was a pretty bleak time. So I went from, I'm living the American dream. I own yeah. a piece of this business in New York City. And from where I came from, you know, far exceeding my expectations from an earning standpoint. And everything was great. And then the whole thing flipped into everything is not so great. Yeah, yeah. And uh, a lot of great lessons learned. You know, didn't have any of my ownership in writing just, just yeah. stupid you know having not had like really a, a a mentor or you know role model to help me not make these mistakes i made every mistake a young entrepreneur can make but yeah. boy, you, learn, you learn fast absolutely and 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 so that that was kind of going to be my next my next obviously you you continued on in the entrepreneurial you know path after that how long did it take you to to get back on your feet after that? I mean, would you consider that your your low point in your career? Was that? <laughs> yeah. That? I, yeah. I, I was facing bankruptcy at 23 years old. Yeah, yeah. And the irony was, I'm in the, the only thing I know how to do now is in the credit markets. And I knew how important good credit was. And here I am, I'm going to have this. Credit, credit yeah. But, you know, I, I got a little lucky. I met a, I met a guy who he was a friend of my brother's. And, uh, you know, he... He saw how kind of despondent I was from what had happened to me. And he says, well, you know, what are you going to do about it? I'm like, I have no idea. I guess I have to go find a job doing something. Mm -hmm. So why don't you start a mortgage company? And, you know, I, I don't have any money to start. It takes money to start a business. Anyway, he decided to lend me $15,000. And that was enough money to incorporate myself, pay my rent for a few months, you know, mm -hmm. pay my credit card bills, my student loans, and, um, and just, you know, get get a license and get myself into business. So I used that $15,000, started the company out of my bedroom, you know, out of my tiny little uh, midtown apartment mm -hmm. and just started hustling, you know, just trying to find real estate brokers who would send me buyers who needed mortgages and, you know, with no overhead because I was working from my apartment, sure. you know, every commission, hundred cents on the dollar dropped to the bottom line. I was able to pay all my bills, actually end up paying off my credit cards and um, I hired another person, took a little office and just, um, you know, never for a minute in my mind did I have any doubt whatsoever that this would be successful. Yeah. I just programmed to look forward, run as fast as I could, and it was working. So I ended up taking that, that little one man shop that I started in my apartment. And, you know, now I have an office with 20 or 30 people in it and the business is growing started opening up other offices around the New York region. And um, a few years later, we converted from mortgage brokering to mortgage lending. So we mm -hmm. got the, the requisite credit lines that we needed from the banks to be able to make loans. And you know, 10 years later, this is a thousand person company with 65 offices in 25 states. We're doing billions of dollars a year in home loans. Mm -hmm. And I ended up uh, forming a mortgage REIT and taking the whole thing public. Oh, wow. Yeah. So in 2004, it's about you know 10 years into this adventure. And by the way, having never, never raised a dollar of capital outside of that first $15,000 that 
my brother's friend lend me. Everything was just organic growth. You know, and I look back and I, not raising capital may not have been the smartest thing. Maybe I could have done more faster, but I was still thrilled with what, what was happening. And in 2004, I took the company public, you know, rang the bell in the New York Stock Exchange. And I had a liquidity event and just a great ride. And, uh, and it was um, a, lot of, a lot of fun, really exciting time for me. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. So with, with the REIT that you formed, what, what I guess, what made you want to, to go down that path and, and you know, create the REIT? And, and what was it that you were going to, to purchase with it? Did you have any type of focus or? Yeah, great question. So as a mortgage banker, you know, we're making loans and we're selling them. And, you know, I would really have liked to have, you know, we, we were a Manhattan-based company, so we were doing a lot of, you know, really jumbo, super high credit quality loans, loans you'd love to keep. Yeah. As a mortgage banker, they give you a credit line, you make the loan, you sell the loan, pay back the line, and you do it over and over again. I couldn't find a credit facility that would let me hold loans for investment. They would only let me hold them short-term and sell them. So I thought about maybe forming a bank so that I could build a permanent portfolio of loans versus having to sell them all. And I met a guy who uh, worked for a mortgage, a mortgage REIT out in Santa Fe, and they were one of the firms we were selling loans to. So we would originate the loan, fund it on our credit line, sell it to them. They would securitize it, either hold it in portfolio or sell the bonds or a variety of different strategies. Mm -hmm. And so I came up with this idea. Um, all the mortgage REITs that existed at the time were simply they were leveraged MBS portfolios. Mm -hmm. They didn't originate or make loans. They bought they either bought MBS and leveraged them or they bought loans, securitized them and leveraged them. Mm -hmm. And I thought if we could be the originator and the aggregator, securitizer and portfolio all in one, that we would disintermediate all these middlemen and our yields on our REIT, mortgage REIT would be higher than the yields on others mortgage, other mortgage REITs because yeah. we vertically integrated and cut out all these layers. Yeah. And so... Um, that had not been done before. I took it to Wall Street, you know, met with a bunch of investment bankers and, uh, and they all loved the idea. And they said, this is bankable. Your company's growing, it's profitable. Now you have this differentiated strategy that we think uh, we can raise capital around. And we ended up doing so. And the interesting thing that happened is the guys that screwed me at an early age and took everything from me that business had grown on a similar course as mine had much larger because they had a head start and yeah. they had money. But when I filed my S11, which is the IPO offering document, now your whole strategy becomes public. Yeah. They basically copied it almost verbatim. If you opened it up and read oh, it, wow. it sounds like you were reading ours. And they, and they decided to do an IPO with the same strategy at the same time as us. And so we were literally raising capital. And if you're familiar with, how the IPO process works. You basically get in a chartered jet and you fly city to city to city, pitching yeah. your investment to all these different firms, you know, hedge funds and private equity and other things. And uh, I would be at certain cities where there they were, like at the same time, that is chasing each other around. So uh, interesting, you know, way this whole thing played out. And and the um, the beauty for me was when we landed back at Tierboro in New Jersey, and I'm on the phone with the bankers. And, you know, how's the How's the capital raise going? And they said, well, the good news is we've raised the money. And so you know, we had established a price for the IPO and we were going to close. And he says, and the better news is your friends over at the other company didn't get their deal done. They failed. They failed. Oh, wow. Money. And I was like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> now, I wish it on anyone, but you know, they had, they you know, had. but, but, but so, so was there, uh, you, you said that they were basically pitching the same story or the, the you know, the same pitch or the same, you know, business model. Was there, 
was there any difference? Were you the difference basically in how you pitched it? I mean, was that, was that the difference? Do you know, or any, any thoughts on what made you stand out over basically the same, the same idea at the same time? One of the things I learned from those guys, you know, I, I was angry for a long time. You know, these guys stole from me and that never feels good, but you know, they did give me an opportunity to learn a trade mm -hmm. and, um, and they also taught me how not to behave, how not to treat people. Mm -hmm. I remember one time my quote partner was going, we were going to lunch and he said, I have to stop at the bank to deposit all this cash in the bank in a safe deposit box. I said, well, why not just put it in the bank? He says, well, when you're in business for yourself, you get sued a lot. So it's better not to have your money in the bank. So predators can't find it. I'm like, huh. you get sued a lot. That's just how it is. Yeah. Well, that's how it is. If you're not honorable. Right. And so just little signals I should have seen along the way. But I think the differentiator when we were going through this IPO process was, you know, well, one, we were, they were bigger, but our profit margins were much wider than them. So just, I think we ran a better company despite the fact that they had size uh. over us. But, you know, I, I, I think that my, um, my genuineness, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very candid. If you ask me a hard question and I don't have a good answer, I'm going to give you the, not the good answer. Yeah. And I think, you know, I've always felt that transparency, you know, it, it, whether you're trying to get somewhere or you're resolving a dispute or whatever it is, if, if both parties are as transparent as they possibly can be, you're going to get to the finish line. But if people are posing or pretending yeah. uh, or trying to make something sound like, like it isn't, and, and that's kind of what kind of guys these guys were, mm -hmm. and, and maybe it showed they ended up getting their deal repriced and they succeeded several months later. But, you know, for me, it felt good at the moment that sure. I was able to accomplish something that they didn't. And, and other than that example in my life, I, I hope everybody does exceedingly well. You know, it's great to be surrounded by successful people. Virtus Technology is a custom business software solution provider. Are you tired of manual entry into an old system that creates more work than it helps? Does your company suffer from constant pain and frustration around its business processes? Do you spend a lot of time and money trying to hunt information down or figure out what is happening in your business? Virtus Technology can help solve all of this. We evaluate your current processes and then create custom software or mobile apps to automate and streamline your business process, eliminating a lot of those pains and frustrations. Unlike other systems, our goal is to digitize your current processes and systems so that your staff's learning curve is very small. If you're ready to take your business operations to the next level, give Virtus Technology a call today. I think success feeds on itself, you know, when you're, when you have, um, you know, an, an environment where people are forward thinking and, and entrepreneurial and inventing and innovating. That's great. Just those guys, <laughs> maybe not so much. Just not those guys. Yeah. That's great. That's great. So you, you mentioned before in the green room about, about FinTech, are you, are you playing in that space now? I mean, is that, is, and I'm, I'm a little bit ignorant on what FinTech is exactly. So maybe if you could even describe that, if, if that makes sure. sense. So, you know, par part of what I started figuring out along the way as an entrepreneur is, you know, you can succeed in a number of different ways. You can go into a business where you're doing the same thing as everybody else is doing, but just try to do it better or try to work a little harder, mm -hmm. or you could do something no one else is doing and innovate. Mm -hmm. And so in the mortgage business, you know, it's a commodity. And, you know, people would say to me, well, how are you going to compete against Chase Manhattan and Wells Fargo and Countrywide, which was big at the time. 
And I said, I'm not really competing against. I'm just going out there looking for a tiny little piece of this vast market. And if I get a tiny little piece, I'm going to be fine. Yeah. So in 2006, the mortgage market sort of hit this peak and we started to see some cracks. And and if you saw the big short or if you were just alive, yeah. you yeah. knew what happened in the credit yeah. markets. But the guys, you know, I like to refer to that movie because the guys that the characters are based upon, they saw this credit crisis coming. And, and so did I, you know, there was, unless you had a vested interest in perpetuating it, I think you, you would have seen it coming. And so, you know, I went to my board, I said, yeah, I know we just went public two years ago, but we need to get out of the business. Seriously, I think bad stuff's coming. And I, that's a, um, a synopsis, but I, I painted them a picture and they were nervous about exiting so soon after we entered the public markets, but mm-hmm. I convinced them that it was time. I ended up selling the company in 2007, just ahead of the credit crisis that was about to come. And then I was, um, I was kind of, I wouldn't say retired because I was no to do other things, but I was looking around at the environment. And one of the things that happened after the last credit crisis was that um, it became really hard for people to get home loans, even people who were deserving because mm-hmm. so many banks were reeling from the losses associated with all that, those crazy loans that had been done leading up to the credit crisis. And I saw an opportunity to fill a void. You have um, a lot of small business owners, uh, a lot of immigrants, a lot of different subs, seniors, gig economy workers, which was kind of a new term then. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and, and these guys couldn't get loans from banks, even though they may have had, you know, a down payment to make in good credit because the way they earned their money or their, their track record or their documentation wasn't uh, pristine. And so I said, you know, if I'm going to re-engage in the mortgage business, I'd like to solve for some of the problems that a mortgage company has, namely, you know, you, you're operating on credit lines and those markets have proven to be volatile, you know, when the, when the economy does poorly, you could lose your credit lines and you're out of business. Yeah. Also, I wanted to be able to build a portfolio as I had spoken about. So the, the bank solved for both of those things. I could, I could use consumer deposits to build a lending business and I'd have a permanent balance sheet, not to mention the fact that as a bank, you're, you know, you're preempted from having to get licensed in every state. Mm-hmm. So we become a national lender. So I looked around, I said, this is a great opportunity to run into a market that everybody's running out of. And so I, you know, I, I consulted with a couple of people and I said, look, what, what would it take for me to, to buy a bank or become a bank? And um, I got some advice early on and the advice I got was don't do it. You okay. have to have your head examined to do this. And uh, it's too hard. The regulator, the regulatory environment is too burdensome. It's you're, you're going to be too small to compete. And every reason people gave me not to do it. And um, usually when people tell me not to do something, that's when you uh, I tend to run right at it. Yeah. But I thought I was smarter than them. And I had a strategy. I'm going to make loans that others won't make, charge a little more for it because I'm taking some risk. Yeah. And and I also thought, and I was early, I thought, you know, people aren't going to, you know, this internet is here to stay. And, mm-hmm. you know, we didn't know exactly what it was going to become. I said, people aren't going to want to go into bank branches anymore. And and I'm going to do something where I don't open bank branches. And I'm going to, you know, I didn't even know what I was talking about building a business on the internet in terms of a depository on the internet. But we, um, we ultimately, so the, the plan was be branchless and lend to people others won't lend to. I said, and the combination of those two things will, will enable me to compete. And uh, the lend to others, lend to people others won't lend to worked really well, but be branchless without a full blown internet strategy wasn't working. And so 
uh, we, you know, we had to pivot pretty aggressively to be able to figure out how to generate business deposits, how to get customers, savings accounts, checking sure. accounts, CDs yeah. online. And, and that's where all the innovation really hit because, you know, technology is complicated, especially for bankers who know banking, but don't yeah. know technology. Marketing on the internet is complicated if all you've ever done was had brick and mortar salespeople and put signs in the window and ads in the paper. Yeah, yeah. And so there was a lot to figure out, but you know, I, I saw it as an opportunity. So two things happened to us. Number one, we were making so many loans to underbanked households that we became eligible to become a community development financial institution or CDFI. Okay. And that is a US treasury designation given to financial institutions that focus on lending to low-income households or blacks and Hispanics or native Americans or other targeted populations that are overlooked by okay. other banks. And as a CDFI, it helped us to get some grants. It helped us to get exemptions from some regulations that made it hard to make home loans, but so it became easier for us to do so. Yeah. And that really supercharged our lending business. And now we're making reasonably good profits. It's had time to reinvest all of that into technology and figure out how to be this, what we call ourselves an adaptive digital bank now. And so we, we really, and I mean, had, that meant I had to bring in new people. I, you sure. know, I hired a, a chief innovation officer, brilliant young guy who helped me a lot with technology and internet marketing and culture building. I hired a chief empowerment officer, which um, is somebody whose job is to just make sure not only our customers, but our employees feel inclusiveness and, and empowered and have career trajectory and upward mobility and that their voice is heard. I hired a chief people officer whose job was career development and leadership training and, and um, you know, building KPIs and metrics around measuring people's performance. So even though we're working remote now, mm -hmm. people still know if they're doing the right thing. And, but ultimately uh, we, we figured out in order to, to become a digital bank and to use technology and to do it virtually, this is a fast forward to today, we had to get really good at culture and the, I read, a, I, I saw an, a, a show on a, one of the airlines, they have the TVs in the back mm -hmm. of the season. They were interviewing this, this young woman who was, you know, touting all of her success. She attributed it to her people and everybody says that, but you know, she, you know, how culture, 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 culture. And so, you know, I, I took that away as a lesson and I said, you know, we really need to focus on the people part of the business, the culture part of the business and, and not in a way that, you know, you're just serving platitudes you know, like our culture, our core values are integrity and honesty. Yeah. You know, those are table stakes. But what really are our core values? And how do you really get people aligned? And this is a segue to the technology. We, we, everything we tried to do in technology, we couldn't do because we're asking bankers to do things they've never done before that's really hard. And it causes tension and it causes stress and, it, and all these other things. But we found if we could build culture, we could do anything. And there's a famous quote, and I have no idea who said it, but culture eats strategy for breakfast. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. You could have the best product, the best service, the best everything, but if you don't have the right culture, good luck with that. And, and so what were some of the things that you learned? Because obviously you've done very, very well with putting the right people in, you know, in the right positions. And I get, you know, I guess being able to filter, I guess is the right, right word, being able to find the right type of people for your, your particular culture. What are some of the, the techniques or, or tips that you've learned along the way that, you know, help you, you make those types of decisions? Well, 
first and foremost, I knew what I was good at and what I wasn't good at. And one of the things that I wasn't great at was recruiting the, you know, the best people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because that's a, that's a discipline and a skill that's learned over years. And yeah. I, I said, I, there's, there's somebody that can learn, not just recruiting, recruiting and recruiting and cultivating. Yeah. And um, I was introduced to a guy who was a consultant and his business was helping companies you know, develop, do talent development, culture building, things like that. And he had, um, he had helped a friend of mine's company grow. It's before becoming a consultant grow from, you know, very small to thousands of people. And um, a lot of the, the, the tools that they used and the tricks that they learned were, were, were taught by this guy. And so um, one of the most important things I did was brought in someone who can help me to figure out how to attract the best talent, mm-hmm. uh, you know, how, how to, how to recruit them. We recruit internally. We, I mean, we'll use headhunters, but we try to recruit mostly internally and, um, you know, and how to, how to filter for the right personality traits, like cultural fit. You have Mm -hmm. two people on paper who have the same resume. They're both qualified. One may be a great cultural fit and one may not be. And how do you figure out who it is? Because most people are trained to ask, you know, tell me about a challenge you've overcome and tell, you know, describe to me, you know, your skills and, and resume stuff. And so, so Mike Lance, our chief people officer, really helped turn that upside down and said, you know, let's, let's try to figure out how to hire people who are a good fit. And that is, you know, that isn't easy to do. No, not at all. So we would do cute things like, I don't know if we're still doing it, but like we would ask recruits to, to film a TikTok video. Okay. Why? Okay. Well, just because you, know, you may have never done one before and, and A, see if you can figure it out. And B, yeah. Yeah. see if you're comfortable doing something like totally outside of your... Your, you know, your normal comfort zone. And, and it's a weird thing, but as part of an interview process, we just, we're, we're trying to figure out how to get to who you are as a person. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and we, we, we do a lot around that. Uh, and that helps us to find the right people. But the other thing we did was we cast our recruitment net nationally. And, you know, uh, we were doing that already. And then COVID just accelerated it because yeah. once everybody has to go work remotely, you have to figure out how to run a business remotely. Yeah. You figure out how to run a business remotely if you do it well and it works and you can maintain strong culture and strong engagement and strong buy-in. And you say, well, I don't just have to require recruit people in the New York metropolitan area. I can recruit people from anywhere in the country. Yeah. And all of a sudden you're able to bring in talent you would have never found before. Yeah. So, you know, our, our, like for instance, our chief technology officer lives in Alabama and our head of digital products lives in Louisville and my chief marketing officer lives in DC and my CFO, we have a guy who's quite consultant CFO lives in, in Chicago and my chief information security officer is in Vegas. I mean, this is a virtual company now. And if you could get culture down and figure out how to keep engagement, despite being remote, the whole, the heavens open up to you in terms of who you're able to attract some businesses it doesn't work for. Yeah. You know, yeah. If, if there are businesses where you know, you're hiring young people out of college and they need hands-on training and supervision and they need to hear and absorb from others around them, then maybe being in the office has to work for you. But if you're in a business that has a lot of re- uh, replicated functions and people mm-hmm. are doing this sort of the same thing day in and day out and they can get really good at it just by measuring their performance, giving them feedback and compensating them on, KPIs, the other um, key performance indicators, that all of those things go into recruiting the right team. And then I think the next part of it is don't be short-sighted to the extent that you can stretch 
and be willing to pay for the talent that you need. Mm-hmm. You know, we've, we've reinvented our C-suite uh, over the last few years and it's night and day for a CEO to have senior management that really does everything. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. You know, I don't need to get 500 emails a day and then have to figure out, you know, work through the night and weekends. I don't do that anymore. Yeah. Uh, my weekends are mine. Yeah. Uh, because I've spread the work amongst senior managers who are the absolute right persons for people for the job. And, and it, it you know, the, the team gels well. And that wasn't the case for years, you know, mm-hmm. before we figured out this, I don't want to rant on about culture, but before we figured it out, you know, it was hard. We'd have toxic environment at times, you know, two managers don't get along. We don't know how to fix that. You know, call yeah. a meeting and, you know, have them hash it out and then they go back and nothing changes. Yeah. So, but, you know, it revolves around having a common vernacular, you know, it revolves around having core values that everybody buys into the way we speak to each other, the way we engage with difficult situations, difficult problems. And so I'll share with you what the core values are. And these were, these were, you know, sort of a cohesive effort amongst all managers to come up with what, what do we really need to be focusing on? And so, so one was, especially as a bank trying to become a technology company, uh, progress, not perfection. Mm-hmm. You know, people sometimes get afraid to make a mistake so they won't try something or, you know, they'll hope somebody else tries it because it's hard. And so we just say, you know, at every meeting, if we don't get this right, it's okay. If you break something, it's fine, but we have to, we have to make progress every day. And as long as we're making progress, we'll learn from that progress and we'll get yeah. better and we'll be able to pivot, and figure things out. And I can't tell you how many meetings we'll have where, you know, we'll get stuck and someone will go, oh, I'm stuck here. This isn't working. So we'll say, well, let's talk about the progress we've made so we can still feel good about where we're stuck and then figure out where to go from here. And so the next core value would be know the goal. Okay. And we sit in meetings and like every meeting you get shot off into tangents and you were here talking about this. And next thing you're talking about that and somebody, and it isn't going to be me. Someone will stop and say core values, know the goal. What is it we're trying to accomplish right now? And let's make sure that every word that's spoken from this point forward in the meeting is centered on solving for whatever the goal is today. Mm -hmm. And that's a language that we don't just use in our executive meetings, but these are the, the executives take it down to their downlines and they use that language in their own meetings and it makes people real comfortable. And then another one is um, uh, say cheese. Say you know, cheese. It's silly, but you know, sometimes things get tense. And, you know, I've had actually employees say back to me, if they'll see me with some type of a grimace on my face because of some stress that you know, the regulators or whatever, and they'll go say cheese. And what happens is we both smile, <laughs> you know, just like you do when the guy holding the camera says say cheese. He yeah. too, usually. And, uh, and just say, hey, it's like lighten up. Like this yeah. isn't going to kill any of us. So let's just realize that although this is work and it's hard and stressful, like this, you know, this isn't life or death. So say cheese was kind of our way of reminding each other of that. Mm-hmm. And then the last one, well, there's two, we added another one. The last one was try it on, especially with technology and processes. Or how do you manage the national sales force? You know, well, do, do you break the big accounts into groups or do you let one guy handle it? And everybody has a different opinion. And one of the things we realize is we're not going to always agree. So at some point, someone will go, okay, we don't agree. Why don't we do this one? And I'm not saying this is the right one, but let's try it on. Mm-hmm. Let's see how it works. And if it doesn't work, okay. No harm, no foul. We'll try something else. So try it on has been sort of a good core value that enables us to know that 
we don't have to have the exact right solution for everything we're going to, where everything mm-hmm. we're going to try. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then the last one that we just added, cause we had four, I think four is plenty, but we added a fifth, uh, it's in, embrace conflict comma respectfully. Okay. And so, you know, it, it's, it's inevitable that, you know, somebody will step on somebody else and maybe not knowingly, but the other person will think it was intentional or think that the other person has some agenda. And I'm like, you know what, usually let's just assume positive intent, which could clearly be another core value, but we have enough. Mm-hmm. Assume positive intent. If somebody did something that offended you or treaded on your area or hurt you or undermined you, let's come at it with, I'm assuming the person didn't mean it the way I'm interpreting it. And I'm going to go run to that conflict and I'm going to embrace that conflict and I'm going to have it out with that person, but I'm going to do it in a respectful way. And as long as that person's coming at it with the same mindset, we're going to resolve this. And that's hard. And it doesn't yeah, happen that way absolutely. all the time, but, but at least we talk about it. And if you talk about it, then it manifests itself in reality. So that's a long rant about core values, but they really work. So and your core values could be something entirely different, but that's no, what we mean. So, so I wanted to get into that a little bit because it, it's interesting. I've never heard, I've never heard core values stated the way that you've stated them. Cause you kind of, you kind of like, like brushed off the, the typical core values. Normally they're a word more, you know, maybe a phrase, but yours were all, all like action-based, you know, they all, they all had they all had a purpose and they sort of flowed into one another, which I think is really interesting. Normally you don't, you don't hear that with any of the core values. Was that something that you, you did intentionally or you realized, or did you learn that from somewhere? Was there, you know, books or is that from your, your people officer? Like where, where did that, where did that inspiration come from? All right. Here's the, my big takeaway. If I was going to tell an entrepreneur anything, I don't know anything. <laughs> I never read a business book in my life. I never hired a consultant to tell me how to do something better. I'm just, I'm going to do it and I'm going to work really hard and I'm going to, I'm going to solve problems and bat things down. And that always worked, but that only gets you so far. It wasn't until recently that I started to engage some consultants and I read, you know, I love Pat Lencioni, for instance, is a great, you know, author of, of management style books. And, um, and there's a lot you can be taught by somebody else. So we had a management offsite. And this goes back a few years now. And I brought in a consultant to help us to a organize a management offsite. You know, how do you figure out what are the most important things you need to be working on? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, how, how is the day, the day and the next day supposed to go. But one of the things we did was we built that offsite around one of Pat Lencioni's books and you could pick, you know, pick your author, but this consultant happened to be a big fan of this guy. And so, as a byproduct of that, I have become, but, and I won't get this exactly right, but, you know, answering the six questions, like, you know, so let's start with, okay, managers, why do we exist? Mm-hmm. What exactly does this company exist to do? Simple question, but sometimes it's hard to answer. Yeah. Um, what are the most important things we're supposed to be working on right now? Who does what, you know, that sometimes isn't clear. So there was in this particular illustration, there was a handful of questions that if you start to answer those questions, then you're going to start to figure out what your company is made of, where it's going, who's responsible to do what. And then you insert to insert into that the core values that are necessary for your company to do the things you just defined your company needs to do. And, yeah, and that what didn't come from me. I got it from a guy. And yeah. it's, it's learnable. Like it's, yeah. it's learnable. It's teachable. It's replicable. And but it requires intentionality. 
Yeah. And you're not going to build culture in a day. You're not going to build core values by sitting in a meeting for 50, you know, 15 minutes and going, okay, teamwork is really an important one. Yeah. Well, no shit, you know, integrity, same. So those are the core values you typically hear. But we said, let's all embrace values that reflect who this company is and where this company is trying to get. If we were a manufacturer or something else, we probably have different core, they might be around safety or, or that kind of thing. But again, you know, there are people out there that have spent their entire careers learning how to do this stuff and they can teach it to you. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that you can find people to bring in-house on your management team, like we've been successful in doing, then that's game changing. Now, you know, this isn't necessarily startup stuff because startups oftentimes don't have the budget to do things like right, this. But right. if you are starting up something or even early phase, early stage, you need to put some thought and focus into how you're going to build your culture, how you're going to build your core values and set the company up right from the, from the onset. And the corollary to the story I was telling about the woman who I saw on the TV in the back of this screen on the Delta airlines flight. I, I, I wanted to, I, a few days later, I was telling some of my coworkers about, look, this woman, like she, she, she started this, um, not to throw anybody into the bus, some innovative suitcase company. <laughs> I don't know okay. Okay. And, uh, and I was blown away by the things she was saying. And so I, I emailed a story about her to somebody on my management team. And they emailed me back a story that she was just fired as CEO of her own company for fostering a toxic culture. Oh my God. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> <What>? <laughs> so the point is these can't just be words. Like, yeah, right. Exactly. You gotta, you gotta follow you up with to them. really live it. And, and, and that's what that's what yours do. I mean, it, it again, it's action based. So you guys can actually live it out. It's not something you have to remember. It's, you know, like you said, you're in that moment when you're you're pissed off or somebody's pissed off and being able to you know, have that in the back of your head as a tool to be able to you know provide some levity to that situation and say, geez, I, I love that. I love that. That is that is really, really powerful. I mean, because we have all of our core values laid out, too. And again, they're more words, you know, things that mean you know something to us and Again, we're trying to attract people, like you said, that that uh, you know those words identify and resonate with them as well. But it, it you know, they're they're words. They're not necessarily actions. It's not again. It's not something that you can actually live out and and express, you know, in different situations and sort of use as tools to be able to navigate through. So I, I maybe we'll have to go back. Whatever you say, it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's yeah. That's very true. But no, I, I I love your I love the I love your your core values and and the approach that you have taken with it. And obviously, you know, it's been very, very successful, you know, helping you build, build your company as well. So great job. Great job. Excellent. Well, well, Steve, if people want to learn more about you or your company, what would be the best way to reach out and get in touch or learn more? Well, you can find me on LinkedIn, Steve Schnall, Quantic Bank, or our website, quantic.com, Q-U-O-N-T-I-C. I think between those two routes, you find me or anything you want to know about us. Excellent. Excellent. Steve, this has been a lot of fun and uh, I think people are going to get a lot of, a lot of value out of this one. So I appreciate that. Many thanks. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Good conversation. Thanks for listening. And remember, pass the secret sauce.